Trueheads will know that from 1987 to 1999, the Ann Arbor-based Motor Booty magazine was the best publication on the planet. Motor Booty had a kind of perfection going for it that no other music magazine could touch. Better taste, better graphics, better writing, and better humor. True to the magazine's tagline, Motor Booty really was the better magazine. Like other fanzines, Motor Booty ran straight pieces. Definitive interviews with everyone from The Last Poets to Harry Cruz to Ron Ashton. But the guts of the mag were the witty comics and articles lampooning rock music sacred cows. After reading Motor Booty, it was hard to take self-important artists like Nick Cave or Sonic Youth or Henry Rollins quite so seriously. Artist Mark Dancy is one of the magazine's founders, and his striking visuals are responsible for a good deal of Motor Booty's immortality and charm. Mark also played in the hardcore band Born Without a Face and later in Big Chief, who would go on to sub-pop and major label success. We had done an interview together back in 2000, so it was awesome to reconnect with Mark. Sadly, our call got cut short, but you'll notice we still managed to cover a ton of ground. So please enjoy this chat with Mark Motor Booty Dancy on Rockrit. Awesome. Away we go. Mark, it is good to hear your voice after 20 years, man. This is really a treat. <laughs> yeah, it's good to hear you too, man. I want to start with hardcore because hardcore is part of your story as well, too. Yep. So I have to ask, did yep. you see that hardcore documentary, uh, the Detroit hardcore documentary, Dope, Hookers, and Pavement? Yes. What did yep. you think? Yes. Well, I thought, so I've I've met Otto before and he's a good guy and has done He's, you know, he had that that zine called Sold Out back in the old days, and he talked to Big Chief and interviewed us. And he, but at this, even at the time, he had a interest in older stuff, like older hardcore kind of stuff. And it's such a such an organic story that he found that footage. You're gonna have to fill in for your people about this. <laughs> Anybody who's listening that who hasn't seen this. I guess it won't make much sense, but, you know, he found the footage of the freezer among his own home movies, and it became this this intro to the thing. But that is kind of this this thing. Is, it's such a niche that someone who doesn't know about this stuff, I think they might get lost in it because it doesn't get a, it needs to be put in a context. I thought that's what was a missing thing, that it wasn't put in a context. But because to me, it was just like, seeing all my friends like Rob Michaels is one of our, the main writers for motor booty. He was, he's like one of the guiding forces for, you know, the guiding spirits of the mag. Barry didn't want to be in the interview. Barry, Barry Hensler from the Necros didn't want to be in the interview or the, the movie. He's one of the other guys, one of the main players in this thing, one of my best yeah. friends. So when I was seeing that, it was like, Hey, there's Rob, <laughs> there's Andy, you know, another one of my best friends. They're all, you know, I'm, I, I'm not too close to it to be able to critique it, whether that somebody who didn't doesn't know these people closely would be able to understand this thing. You know, there's a lot of in, you know, in inside information. To me, it was just like, there's Andy, there's Rob, there's Chris. You know, it, it was great to see all those guys talking. But I that's the, kind of what I would say is like, there's a lot of inside information and that kind of, you know, I was sitting with somebody who who didn't live there and didn't live through that thing and didn't, uh, you know, uh, know all these people. And that was her response. Her response was, I, I don't know who these people yeah. are, you know. And one other problem 
with the thing was just that the 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 title doesn't give you an end to it. Like a t- title, you, you, John Brandon said that, but it doesn't give you some some reason that it's about music. Mm-hmm. The subtitle to the to the thing does, but it, the thing itself doesn't. All that being said, man, he did so much work and pulled that whole thing together and did it out on himself. You know, did it himself and. You know, it was great to see it. It was great to see that that footage, you know, the few seconds of footage of those guys going crazy. I wasn't there, so I got to see it. It was good. I have to. I still have to watch it. Otto is a hero of mine. I interviewed him in my first zine back in 99 and for Sold Out. Sold Out was a Yeah, big... so he was already a veteran. Yeah, yeah, he was an inspiration. And he felt like an old dude when I talked to him, and he was probably in his late 20s, and I was in high school at the time. And... Uh, yeah. He had all these war stories from growing up in hardcore. So I, I'm embarrassed I haven't seen it yet. I've seen his fiction movies, his features, but I know this has been his baby that he's been working on for years. So I'm excited. It yeah. sounds like maybe a bit of context is missed and it's kind of made for insiders. But you know what? I'm I'm super guilty of that with this podcast. I've had friends listen to it. Just out of <laughs> that's probably true. That's I mean, look at me speaking about this. What we're talking about is even more insiders, so old, you know, like we're going to talk about hardcore music and motor booty, like stuff that's vitality is so far in the past. So, but, but I like to talk about it. I like talking with you. So let's just go for it. No, man, I'm excited you're doing this. And I, you know, I started this whole podcast knowing it's pretty niche and the potential audience for it is kind of limited, but I think that audience is going to appreciate it. And I, I try and give context, but it's hard. It's hard sometimes to, you know, I've had friends listen to it out of kindness and they're like, you know, you're passionate, you're really passionate about it. It's, it's, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about, but clearly you love what you're, you know, you love what you're covering. So more power to you. Um, You were in a hardcore band too, Mark. You were in a band called Born Without a Face. Where did you guys fit into that scene? So we were very much latecomers out of our incompetence to be able to play. <laughs> like we we tried to start the band in 1980. Like we had the idea to start the band in 1980. It was my brother and uh, our friend. And so we had three and we kept trying to get a drummer and trying to put it together. And it took us through my entire time through high school, we couldn't get it together. Like we'd, we'd get excited about, you know, the records we were listening to. Like we'd, we'd talk about music that we liked and look up these ads, you know, you see these ads for frontier records and see that they had the circle jerks and, uh, you know, UXA and China white. And who is the other one in that ad? There's like four or TSOL, like, and we divide up the, the the purchases between us and then record them. Like my brother and I would buy half and our friend Dan would buy the other half. And then we'd switch uh, so we could record them so we could have them all. And then we, you know, we're, you know, like looking up the, these these records and buying them and, and trying to play that and trying to emulate that. And uh, we couldn't do it. Like we get together and mainly the, the thing of like trying to get a drummer I know I told you this 20 years ago when I was talking about the, you know, our, our musical experiences. It wasn't until we finally got someone who was a bass player. He wasn't even a drummer, but he was a bass player. So he was a musician and had rhythm who could play these drums that we 
found, you know, like this, <laughs> this, this cast off set of drums that we'd assembled and he, <laughs> you know, we could play stepping stone, you know, we could like play it on the same beat. And it was like, we finally got there in 1983, you know, it took <laughs> us so long. Cause we, We'd get together like we say Saturday. We're going to practice. We're going to we're going to we're going to jam. We get together, and it would be such a demoralizing disaster that we would <laughs> give up on the idea. We'd quit, and then a couple months later, we'd be like, "Oh, let's get together. Let's jam." And that's why it took so long. It, it, we were so couldn't do it. Like couldn't assemble the parts. Meanwhile, I would, you know tape things off the radio there was a there was two radio shows that were going on and on saturday night and sunday night in grand rapids where i grew up one was a new wave show that these people had and sometimes they played hardcore music they'd have a special and play hardcore music and i'd tape it and then the next day or the, you know after that i'd have whatever it was discharge and black flag and the necros and try to play you know learn how to play by ear trying to play what they were playing it took me a couple years to even know how to play a bar chord so so it's like why does it sound so thin and bad when it sounds so great when the you know when the clash is playing it or discharge it took me years and then the other thing there was a there was a radio show on sunday night and it was this guy was a huge fan of the stooges and he play but he'd play like uh, this whole gamut of music. He'd play like Little Richard and Chuck Berry and old Rockabilly from the 50s. And then he'd play the Sex Pistols and the Stooges. And he'd yell along with it, like whatever Iggy was saying, like feel it. He'd yell over the, he'd yell over the recording when it was playing. So I have these recordings that I made of those. I'd stay up late on Sunday and record those. So it's like him you know him yelling feel it over over the stooges <laughs> but then i take that in the in my bedroom and like try to play along and some of the thing about the stooges some of the the the, the riffs from raw power you could figure those out because they didn't have a chord in them they had just like a riff that i could figure out before i could play a chord so it took years of this like i had no you know we had no reference of of you know, somebody to learn from. We're just out among each, you know, my, my brother and I and our, our friend trying to have a band, trying to learn how to play guitars. Like I said, we finally got somebody to, to be the drummer in 1983. And he had access. His brother had gone down to Detroit. His brother knew everybody in Detroit had lived there, like knew John and Larissa, lived down in the Cass Corridor. And, uh, he was in a band with some of the guys from L7. They talk about them in the movie. These mm-hmm. guys who were great musicians, and they were actually playing shows, and they had stuff going on. So we finally had an in. We could go down and go to Detroit. We started in 1982 in the fall, but then in 1983, uh, we're able to go down there and stay with my friend's brother and see shows like the birthday party came and L7 opened for the birthday party. So all these, we're seeing all these things finally, you know, years after, years late, we're finally getting down there and seeing what's going on and finally got to see, you know, negative approach playing and and the necros and all this kind of stuff. We're finally seeing these things, but those guys have been doing it for years. That's the thing that, that they kind of point out in the hardcore documentary. They had already the Necros had toured the country. They'd, they'd like been all over the place, but you know, that was old hat to them by the time we're finally being able to play stepping stone, <laughs> you know, the time we're playing, trying to 
tried to be able to make up songs and play. Like, so what I'm saying in the context of things, we're late. We're very late to the game. So we're, we're behind, you know, uh, these guys had already gone through these things. Some of these bands like Bored Youth had already come up, written things, recorded and broken up, you know, before we'd even been able to play a song through. So, so we're out in the hinterlands of Grand Rapids. In Detroit is, you know, where things were happening even Kalamazoo was more happening than, than, uh, than, than, uh, Grand Rapids. They had the guys from violent apathy had this organization and they were able to get venues on the campus at WMU and brought all these bands through there. That's actually where black flag came through there and, and discharge and the circle jerks and all these other bands came through there. So, uh, we're able to see a lot of things down there and learn a lot of things down there, but we were, we were behind, you know, we were behind the, behind the, uh, behind the trend. So by the time we were playing Metallica had put out their record, you know, we were finally like having shows and playing out and Metallica had put out their record and that changed the, the, the scene a little bit team that changed, you know, you'd see that this, this, these guys who could play better, they were just, they could play better and faster. They could take in hardcore and they had, they had lyrics that weren't so good, but they were, they were <laughs> undeniably powerful and, and this thing. So we would look at the hardcore bands and we'd look at Metallica and, and like try to come up with something, you know, and then by the, like, <laughs> for instance, in 1982, there was a show in uh, Kalamazoo where the Necros and, uh, uh, and Violent Apathy opened for the Misfits at uh, a, a Veterans Lodge, you know, the mm-hmm. kind of classic renting a hall show. Totally. On the other side of town was Judas Priest at Wing Stadium. My brother and our friend, that you know, the other guitar player in Born Without a Face were over hardcore by then. <laughs> They're like, we're going to see Judas Priest. So I dropped them at Judas Priest at, at, uh, at Wing Stadium. And then I went to the hall show and watched the, you know, watched the hardcore bands. And I had to leave before the Misfits played to go fit, pick up my brother and, and Dan, my friend. So I go get them from, you know, at the, at the heavy metal show at Judas Priest and bring them back to the hardcore show. And we're standing at the, at the, at the side door looking at the Misfits playing. And Barry, who was always, you know, subversive, he's like, just go in. I didn't know him. He's just like, just walk in. I don't care. Walk in the side door. We didn't walk in. We're just watching. And it sounded terrible. It's like, we don't understand. You know, the sound was terrible from the side. And, but these guys all knew it and they were singing along. (laughs) And we're like, okay, (laughs) the misfits, I guess people love them. We, you know, we can hear it. Years later, you know, I didn't have their records then. Years later, I get the records. You can see, you know, why they were so popular. But, but even years later, I told Andy Wendler from the Necros about being at that show and seeing this thing, and he said, "Oh yeah, we wish we could have been at the Jews pre-show." <laughs> <laughs> it all comes out later, eh? Yeah. You guys have a Bandcamp page, first of all. Born Without a Face has a Bandcamp page, and I was listening to your stuff recently. And there's definitely like a metal edge to what you guys are up to. Yeah. And yeah, you, you developed we drums. were later, you know, well, we never got to that. We were trying to, but we were a little bit later in the game. So that, that was in the air, you know, that was a, that was an influence. Metallica was an influence by then in the world. Yeah. So, 
we recorded stuff. And again, the Necros were really the, actually it was the Necros were this band that was, they were veterans and they could really play. They were really good. They toured and they'd get gotten really tight and they toughened up and they were like playing through Marshall stacks. They had this, 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 you know, they weren't playing with, with crummy equipment. They were really good. And we opened for them in 1984, you know, all the way till, you know, a year later after, after we'd started, we, we played a show with them and Barry was always like, he, before I even knew him, before I was friends with him, he was always encouraging, like, you guys should record, you should like, you know, get a student loan and <laughs> get a student <laughs> loan and make a record, you know, like any kind of way to finance it. So yeah. the first thing we did was, oh, we're going to record an album. Like every band in those days would record a seven inch because you don't even know what you're doing. You've never been in a recording studio and you're going to, uh, you know, just, just do what you can. And we're, we're so, so much hubris and so much, you know, like idea that we're, no, we're going to just jump over that and do an album for our first recording. So we did this album and it was like in this studio that my friend's brother knew in a converted chicken coop way, way outside of Grand Rapids in the middle of the winter. And we're, you know, we're trying to do this grand, uh, uh, album length thing. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of, you're, it's a, it's a learning curve. You know, we didn't know what we're doing. We're just trying to make something tremendous. We wanted to be like all, all the, all the good music that we'd heard to be that thing, to be that big, loud, dark thing. But so, so we recorded at the end of 1984 and then we recorded two more, uh, seven inches after that, because then it became like, scraping up some money and trying to by that time I was in college and then like you said you try to scrape things together organize things during the summer and try to get something done and then in the in the fall it's it's hard to get anything done yeah yeah it sounds like Detroit hardcore early on there's there's a bit of a musical sophistication happening you're talking about like L7 negative approach but also the Stooges and birthday party it's like a lot of hardcore kids in the early 80s probably would not be able to move between these things with ease. But it sounds like Detroit kids had had it figured out a bit more. They, they could see that you could kind of you could embrace all of these kinds of things. Yeah, the guys who who are our heroes in town, like Dave Rice, was just an excellent guitar player and was you know, he would do sound for the hardcore shows, but he was such a good guitar player and was thinking of, of beyond hardcore. He was, he was thinking of, of better, you know, he had, he had a, 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 a large record collection and learned a lot from it and was trying all these different things. So these guys were, were going way beyond that, going on beyond the, the strict hardcore dimensions. I want to come back to music, but, Let's get into your art. When did you first pick up a pen? So that was something I always did. When I was little, I did that and uh, always drew. Uh, when I was little, do you, I don't know if you experienced this. When a kid can draw, other kids gather around them. Like mm -hmm. when I was seven, other kids gather around and said, 
wow, are you going to be an artist when you grow up? Like, like you can draw. Are you going to be an artist when you grow up? <laughs> and by that time, I had already learned my dad's mantra, which is, no, art is a good hobby, but you can't make a living off it. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is basically true because it's really hard. It's really hard to, to to keep it, you know, to keep that going. It's not a thing you like encourage your kid to be like, oh yes, you should be an artist. No, don't get don't get a good job. Be an artist. Be a bohemian. <laughs> but uh, as you know, he he's just being he's just being practical. He drilled that into my head by you know by age seven. Although he was the one who sat down me when I was, you know, two and drew with me, like sit, would, I'd draw these pictures and he'd write underneath what they are. I'd tell him, that's a cactus. We lived in Arizona. That's a stagecoach. That's, that's, you know, like, a, I couldn't draw people. I couldn't draw horses, you know, <laughs> but it became this thing. Like I draw some blob and he would, he would write underneath cactus. <laughs> <laughs> so so I always you. did this stuff. Yeah, he did though, and then he tried to tell me that it was just a hobby and and you can't make a living off it. But I did it anyway. You know, I I, I didn't, but but that meant I didn't have an idea. My parents would have completely supported me. They supported me anyway, but they would have supported me if I had a clear idea about like I want to go to art school. I want to learn this thing. I want to be an artist. But I didn't like it was my. It's actually me not having a clear idea. It's kind of I went, I did this thing and I did that thing. I just would, you know, when I started reading comic books, I would try to make my own comic books. I would try to copy the the Marvel comic books and make my own little paper, you know, pencil versions of them. And then I got I got tired of that. I thought it was corny and got into mad and when that was this this thing where they just made fun of everything and that was better than superhero comics they'd made fun of superhero comics you know so i would uh try to do my version of of mad my own satirical magazine and make fun of movies and make fun of you know comics and other things like that and then uh when i got to university of michigan they had the gargoyle which was the humor magazine which had been started in 1909 and all these people had written for it like uh arthur miller had written for it and the guy that did grin and bear it and all these people who had been uh writers for comics had had been had written for it over over the decades and it was a great thing is that they would let us do whatever we wanted so we had no supervision we but we had an office there in the student publications building where we could just do what we wanted and put it out there. And there was a couple guys who are great cartoonists who had just been there before me is uh, Terry LeBan and uh, Lloyd Dangle had come through there and they, they were like, you know, all the back issues with their work was in there as to show as an example of what you could get away with there. And they had come up through underground comics. They had, you know, they had, they had learned about Zap Comics and Robert Crumb and uh, Robert Williams. And those guys were my heroes too. I could see that they had influenced the, the, the Terry and Lloyd to, at the Gargoyle. So I saw that this kind of thing that I was learning about at that time, underground comics, I could have that in the Gargoyle. You could put that in the Gargoyle and print it and have it published. And what we'd have to do is uh, 
when when the issue would come out, we'd have to sell it in person. We'd have to sell stand out on the the main crossroads in the in the at the University of Michigan, where all the in front of the graduate library, all the you know all the sidewalks cross there. So all in between classes, there's masses of, of students going through there, and we'd have to stand out there like newsboys and try to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of funny because it was like you're out there like trying to hawk this thing to frat boys who are completely indifferent to this thing. They don't, don't know <laughs> what it is. They don't care. They don't care about you. You know, they're, they're, you're, you're out there like, please, <laughs> a dollar for the gargoyle for this crazy thing. But, you know, it was, it was a good thing. It was a good thing because we, I got to put my thing in print. You know, I got to put my thing out there in print and anything I wanted, put it out there. And we'd come up with anything we wanted to put in there, we could do it. It was kind of a pretty luxurious thing, actually. Yeah. After that, when I, at the end of, when school was getting out or, you know, you could go out in the world, I just wanted to keep doing that. You know what I went to college for by that time I was a major in psychology. I knew I didn't want to do that. I hadn't gone to art school because I was arrogant and stupid because <laughs> all I could see was like, but I was and as, as youth and arrogance and, and ignorance, you know, could, like you're there, they have an art school. I could have learned all kinds of skills. Instead, I was doing like learning things on my own at the gargoyle and put, you know, cause you could have a, I could see a, an immediate result an, an immediate result instead of this idea of it's like, I didn't have an idea of painting or fine art or anything like that, or even drawing, like trying to really learn how to draw. I didn't have patience for it. And I saw the people, I kind of thought the people who went to art school were just kind of goofing off and wasting their time. And, uh, cause I'm, I'm again, like as this sort of superficial judgment of what, what art school could be. Obviously, if I'd been smart, I could have gone to art school and like learned a lot of things about drawing, figurative art, you know, like all the, all the, all the, the, the duels you have to pay, you know, in your hours of practice to learn these skills. I didn't do any of that stuff. I didn't have any, have any patience for any of that stuff of trying to learn your, your drawing craft. I was just like, we're going to, you know, put this, put this, the, the simplest way is, is a is a cartoon you just have to come up with the the black outlines black and white art it's perfectly good look how they did it in zap comics it was just black and white and it just had to be funny it didn't even have to be funny it could be whatever it could be crazy so <laughs> that was my 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 example my model to try to go for and uh that's what i was trying to do you know i i the the experience of being at university it's a lot of things that i didn't learn but what i did want to do is just keep doing that i didn't want to be in psychology i didn't want to go you know go out in the world and try to do that uh one of my by the time i got it was a senior i was in a the abnormal psychology class you had to do all these prerequisites to get to that and i thought that would be the best class because it would be like now we're going to learn about just crazy people we're going to learn about like the man who thought his wife was a hat you know that kind of crazy <laughs> crazy psychology and uh my professor said in the class the you know freud said 
the artists have always been the psychologists of all time, except they don't, they don't psychologize. Like they don't speak in, in psychological language. They're not trying to make it a scientific language. They're just, they're making works of art. <laughs> and uh-huh. I was saying, yeah, okay. That's a better way to go. You're trying to understand human nature. You're trying to make something worthwhile. Why not be an artist? Why who wants, who wants to be a psychologist? So, I just wanted to keep doing the gargoyles and what what that kind of thing, like putting out a magazine and and getting to you know print it and put it out in the world. So a couple of my friends from the gargoyle or from yeah from the gargoyle, Danny Plotnick and Ivan Sanchez and Mike Rubin, we started Motor Booty, and the idea was more that it was going to be the same. It's basically the same format as the gargoyle, which was black and white uh insides with a color an extra color <laughs> like the like the 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 luxury of having one extra color on the cover and we'd put it out and it would be the the same kind of thing like the the underground comics and and satire from the gargoyle plus music writing about music in the same way that all these fanzines were that were going on at that time like and also cream magazine which was writing about rock, but completely irreverent about it. Like they, they, they were writing about their heroes, but they'd make fun of them. You know, they had, they were, they didn't take anything seriously. So we wanted to do something like that. And that was the idea for motor booty to put those, that kind of thing, you know, a combination of those things. There was a magazine back in those days called flesh and bones. Oh, from Jersey. Yeah. This dude named Jeffo, uh, put it out and it was funny man it would be like the this fake you know fake stuff and like interviews with like the graphics would be like from teen beat magazines to <laughs> to go with these rock about rock bands and the guy he was funny that was a funny magazine and that when we were, were starting up motor booty i saw that thing and when we finally went like when big chief went to new york the first time uh jeff Oak came out and I was like, we can't, we can't, we can't take the stage till Jeffo gets here. And whoever was promoting the the show was like, "Oh, you're waiting, you're waiting for the press, huh?" Like, 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 like it was, you know. It was like, no, it's not the, not because of the press, because it's Jeffo. It's cool. <laughs> That's amazing. We're we're talking about Motor Booty and the first couple like the early issues of it and, and what your goals were for it. I'm missing some of the first issues in my collection. Were the first couple issues a bit more straight up fanzines? Yeah. Like the first two issues actually had record reviews and that was, became this thing like, you know, all fanzines always had record reviews and we thought we should have to have them, even though like half of them were fake, you know, and half of them were just kind of nonsense. But then we realized it's just kind of boring and, you know, I'm not trying to talk about other people's fanzines, but there were, there were things that were just pages and pages and pages that were reviews. And it was kind of like, okay, you know, the same, the same records reviewed here and here and here. We just wanted to do other stuff that was funnier and, and, you know, more interesting, more entertaining. Did you guys have short fiction in the first couple issues too, Mark? I read that somewhere. Yes. Uh, Danny had something that was a little story that he, he actually turned into a film. 
And yeah, I think I'd seen that forced exposure had little stories in it. And and, yeah. and that in those days, I like I, I had the delusion that I was going to be a writer, <laughs> that I could write <laughs> stories. Like I didn't try to put any of my things in there, but I I thought that it could all kind of go together, like little like you know, just kind of funny, weird stories could be in there too. But that we that that didn't last. That didn't last. And I I was looking online. You've got mastheads of and uh, scans of certain issues. And there's masthead for issue number four. And did I see Chuck Eddy's name on that masthead? Yeah, I think he was in an earlier one. I think he, he actually was there in for the second one. He was there and interviewed White Zombie at, at St. Andrews. He just happened to be there. And... Uh, he was just, he was good at it. He was good at, you know, doing an interview for a rock band. He was just making stuff up off the top of his head to make it this, this interesting interview, but he didn't end up, there was kind of like a, uh, not a, not a rivalry or anything like that, but he wasn't, he wasn't like, uh, tight with us we had like a uh, like a a certain group of people i mean when we started it it was everybody was like living in ann arbor a few blocks from each other you know had everything Mm -hmm. going going really tight and it was mike rubin had gotten a a a macintosh of his of his own he actually had a macintosh in his room with the screen that's about the size of like like a checkbook, you know, <laughs> like a, the tiny screen. And we'd be around it, like writing these articles, you know, like in, in is a, a collaboration, like writing these articles, standing around it, writing, you know, standing around the room, trying to write while he typed. It's kind of <laughs> silly, but then everybody, everything's, um, you know, he moved to New York and Danny moved to San Francisco. And it was like, it just became way harder to, uh, be productive you know we kept the magazine going on for many years but it became this thing of like you know talking on the phone and trying to pull it together and it just became so much that's that's part of the reason there's only nine issues you know we had this idea again like we're talking about this niche this niche uh interest of this podcast and we had this Mm -hmm. idea to reprint the motor booty magazines because you know you're talking you haven't even seen them because they're they're scarce you know and it's Mm -hmm. actually it actually makes it better if they're scarce (laughs) because like nobody can nobody can actually uh uh examine the faults of them you know like how (laughs) like what's what's weak and bad about them but but what i'm getting at is we had this idea to do a reprint book and do it like an annotated book like those the annotated Alice in Wonderland, like a scholarly book that has these sidebars that explain all the minutia and the arcana of it because, <laughs> because it's so old. Like you'd have, it's kind of just funny to try to explain what, 
you know, TV, like broadcast TV is doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even make any sense anymore. Like there's some, some reference to sweeps week. Like what is sweeps week? This idea that you're the, the ratings for TV were on and they try to get everybody to watch TV at these you know, special programming to watch TV. And it's like the whole magazine is that it's so far in the past, you know, it's so yeah. far in the, the ancient past, you have to have sidebars to explain the jokes, but that would be funny <laughs> because we could make fun of ourselves. We'd make fun of like, Oh, the, the authors, <laughs> you know, like written in a scholarly voice, talking about these authors like oh they they obviously didn't understand this like in that's how i saw how it is you look back at the the benighted era of the past the benighted you know doctors of the past with their leeches you know and we're (laughs) we're so we're so uh uh we're so uh enlightened now you know we know so much more than they did in those in the dark ages the dark ages of the 80s and the 90s (laughs) <laughs> oh man it's what c.s lewis would call what chronological snobbery i think yeah <laughs> yeah the snobbery of like the i mean in history that's just like the snobbery of the fact that that you happen to be walking around at this time that's what you get so much like with in architecture and all these other things where they they're I'm the architect. I happen to be living right now. I can destroy your hundred year old cathedral or your 500 year old cathedral. (laughs) I can put like some modernist thing and like wedge it in there because I can, because you're dead. (laughs) You made it, you made it, you might've made it, made it for, for all time. And it's, it might be better, but I'm here now and I can, I can, I can vandalize it. You guys, so after those first couple issues, would, is it fair to say you guys adopted like an anti-fanzine approach to fandom? Yes, I'd say that's true. Because then it became, <laughs> it became, it's way more fun to just like be against it and be, you know, put something out that that's against that whole thing. You know, that whole, you know, it's just easier to do that and more fun. It's more, it just came more because among my friends, that's how we were. And, you know, among, we talk about things and it was more, it was more fun to make fun of stuff. And again, it was always the collective had so much more going for it than I ever could. You know, I would stuff that I didn't know about. Mike is Mike Rubens in New York. He's, he's up to, you know, whatever's going on at the minute, Barry and Rob were huge record collectors, and so was Mike. They had huge record collections. They they had really good uh, taste in in music. Like I learned so much from those guys. So we had those guys guiding it. You know, guiding what's what's actually good, what's worth even talking about, what what is what is not worthwhile, and then. Dan Rice was in on it. He's such a hilarious guy, you know, like would just cut through the sanctimonious whatever style or <laughs> fashion was going on at the time. You know, all those guys uh, in t- together, all those guys had this, this sensibility. And that gave me, again, like I just, I, it gave me something, some place to get my drawings printed, you know, and I, I was not, I was not like really guiding the thing so much as yeah, it gave me a, it was a vehicle for it. guess I was guiding it. Yeah. <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> well, you must've had a role. So on the top of the masthead, there's you, 
and your partner in crime, Danny Plotnick. And he's he's like a noted filmmaker, and you're more on the comics. And how were your roles divided? How did that kind of work functionally? So, like I said, Danny immediately left to San Francisco before the first issue even got out, came out. Like we started it and we were still in Ann Arbor. And he, after he graduated, he stuck around for the summer. Then he took off and went to San Francisco. So then it was completely just this divided thing where he would do interviews out there and write some things, but he was willing to do the, the work, like the, the sale, ad sales, like the stuff that I didn't want to do at all. So he was willing to deal with the business side of it. So that he, you know, like he did that for many years, many years later, we get somebody here that here to do it and go around and, and sell ads and, you know, make things, keep things afloat. But for, for years, that's was that was the division. So then it was everybody else here deciding what was, you know, coming up with ideas for for articles deciding what was worth talking about and then we later on we could recruit other cartoonists you know like some of the obviously Lloyd Dangle and Terry Laban they were these you know the guys who I'd look up to from the gargoyle I got them to start contributing to motor booty actually Terry was in the first one and then we would be able to, to recruit some of these other famous guys we got uh, uh, Peter Bag was in one and Chris Ware uh, contributed a couple and Mary Fleener, a lot of really great cartoonists contributed to it. You mentioned how uh, you guys would gather around Mike Rubin's little Mac and collaborate on articles. <laughs> yeah. How, like I flipping through the articles now and prep for this interview, like we're talking thousands and thousands of like small print text on like basically lampooning, like the intersection of rock and roll and literature and dumping on kind of the, the underground rock establishment and like perfectly written prose too. How did that work? Did it work exactly as you're explaining it? Did it evolve that process over time? It was a, a pulling teeth, uh, <laughs> a pulling teeth perfectionist, you know, ordeal. <laughs> That's what it yeah. was. Like just trying to, you know, trying to, 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 to you know, go argue over a gerund, you know, like arguing over a gerund, like Dan, Dan once said, you know, you're these, these minute article uh, arguments about every little thing. And it would take forever, you know, it would take forever to, to, to craft a sentence and we'd have to go have lunch. You know, it's this, this <laughs> ridiculous situation, this impractical thing that just became so unproductive. So, so hard to do. And it would be like laboriously, you know, uh, uh, proofread over and over and over again to try to get it right, to try to make it good. And also the graphics too, which you had. Yeah. Like, and that's only gotten worse with time. Like how, how much time would you spend on graphics on an issue? Just doing like titles and layout and, and your own comics and contributions. How much time went into an issue, man? Yeah, it would take it would take so long and it would just take all the time, you know, like I would have whatever stupid job, you know, whatever 
sweeping the floors at Jacobson's department store at six in the morning and then come home and like go to my desk and, and start working on, on the, on motor booty, like start and just work on that all day. We'll get that at, at night. Just, it took so long to do this stuff. And what you're talking about this perfection, you know, like this, this nitpicking thing, mm-hmm. all those in those days until like, until like 1992, Everything was by hand. Everything was completely, you know, uh, uh, not the typesetting. The typesetting was done on the computer, and then I I print out uh, columns of type and then glue them on the on the layout sheets. Mm-hmm. And but everything else was done, you know, all the art. Everything was done by hand and like you know, pasted on laboriously. And what happened is, you would think that by the time we got access to computers to, to lay things out that it would like make things easier or make things faster. And it made it so you could lay out a whole page and then you'd print out the page and take it to the printer. Like, but, but what I'm getting at is it, for me personally, it only made it worse because then there was, I learned how to use illustrator. And the problem is that in the old days, the, the original would have to be done with brush and ink and be done as perfect as it could be. You know, like mm-hmm. when I did some, some, some artwork or from, for a, a record cover or whatever, the original by hand was the final thing. There wasn't any more of, uh, you know, finessing it or anything else. Now with digitizing it, when I learned how to use illustrator, so I'd still try to do some perfect thing with with uh, with brush and ink and scan it in, and then what I would do after that is take it into the the digital version of it. Even what there's a there used to be a program called Streamline that would try would try to streamline the the drawing, and then you but you'd have little points that you could manipulate it with. Now there's one called uh, a tracing pr- uh, uh, function in Illustrator that gives you all these points that you can manipulate. So it's actually worse now. <laughs> it's actually worse than it was in the 80s and the ni- early 90s because now I can blow the thing up to this, you know, like way bigger than you can actually see it and go through and like smooth every possible thing. Like take these points oh, no. and like just these po- points and levers that's made it even more uh, laborious and more time consuming. <laughs> and it's also more insane because I, I blow this stuff up with this big monitor where you can, it's way bigger than you could ever see it with your eye. It's like you're like the brushes sees better than my eye can see. <laughs> it's such, <laughs> such madness. It's like enabled a new, a new layer, layer of madness of, of time wasting, you know, uh, attention to these details that you can't even see oh man so it's gotten worse gotten worse it's gotten less productive because these just take forever it just takes so long to do this thing like not not only to like make the drawing and and do this thing but then like take it in the computer and do it all over again (laughs) basically do it all over again with the points you know taking the levers and the points to smooth it out until it's really smooth but your perfectionism of like the articles, the writing, the art, just the whole package, uh, it, it obviously paid off because a lot of people loved and raved about Motor Booty at the time. So, no, all it is is 
it was a thing to try to make it like a real, like this uh, aspiration to be like a real magazine, to be, yeah. to be not, to be a fanzine, you know, to, to, to not be called a fanzine, like not be called an amateur fanzine, even though it didn't, you know, it wasn't, it's obviously not the, we call it motor booty magazine. We didn't call it fanzine. We, we try to make it like aspire to make it like a real magazine on, you know, no, no budget, you know, trying to make this thing <laughs> or like a real magazine. But like, I guess the, the whole thing for me is that this combination of perfectionism and incompetence has been my bane for all the time. And especially even now, like that's, that's always the thing. Like I'm trying to do something beyond what I know how to do. And then I have to try to learn how to do it. You know, that's, and that's just how it is. That's the learning, like trying to do something I don't know how to do, especially when it got to be fine art, like painting. When the magazine was done, I was like, starting to do shows and trying to paint without really knowing what I was doing and then trying to do it, like trying to learn how to do it. And again, it goes back to the thing when I was had the ability to go to art school, I could have learned a lot of things without having to try to reinvent the wheel all the time, you know, like, Oh, how do you do this? How do you, how do you do this thing? Like, how do you like, um, one of the funny ones is like, I'd see pictures of guys in, in, painters from the from the past from these classic painters standing there with their palette and this big stick in their hand and i didn't know what it was it's like why does he have this big stick and and his brushes i know what the brush is for i know what the palette's for and then it became this thing like i'm trying to paint something and how do i keep my 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 hand from you know falling in the wet paint <laughs> when i'm trying to paint something how do you keep your hand i'm trying to do these little detailed things how do you keep your hand from going in the wet paint oh i'll i'll get a stick and i'll put it across the edge of the painting it'll be a bridge that i can put my hand on oh i invented this thing no i didn't invent that thing that's called a mall stick <laughs> that was you know like painters have been using those for centuries and that's what the guys in the in the pictures were holding the big stick in their hand was a mall stick <laughs> like i could have learned this thing you know somebody could have taught me that years ago it took me you know uh all this years and time to learn it the the wrong way, the hard way. Dude, you're a genius. You invented that intuitively. <laughs> yeah, not a genius. There were magazines that were inspired by Motor Booty. One of those was Grand Royal. Did you did you ever pick up Grand Royal? And what did you think of it? And Grand Royal, I should say, is the magazine that the Beastie Boys put out for a number of years, like a humor kind of irreverent magazine. Yeah. So in 1992, the Beastie Boys had us go on tour with them. When we were in Big Chief, we went on tour with them through the South and the West. And that was this. That was when they put out that uh, Check Your Head. And we saw that record was this thing like, whoa, you can do, you can do these instrumentals and do all these differences, styles of, of music on this record. And they actually had this really uh, well-organized set when they'd play their show, we'd watch their show every night and it would be like they had it, it's it divided into four parts of their four different kinds of music that they did. 
like one was sometimes they'd have their 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 instruments on and they'd play these these songs and the other ones they were strictly rappers they they didn't have instruments on and they were just they just on stage i mean and then they would just they would just rap and we saw this thing that that they could like just expand the whole thing to be whatever their record collection was whatever they were interested in and then when we went home we did a record that was was like anything we wanted it to be that could be this loose it hadn't didn't have to be like the songs from our set that we'd been you know like we'd honed on playing you know on tour they could be we could just make some new stuff up and make up instrumental songs and have a hardcore you know like a like a like a parody of a hardcore song on there and just have all these styles of things on the record and so that was our taken something from them i think they took from us that like what we were doing in motor booty we had a rule that big chief was never going to be in mentioned in the in in motor booty would never it was never going to be it was never going to be like that motor booty was it was the vehicle of big chief it was always going to be like everybody in big chief was involved in it but it, we would never mention it we never would mention the band it's, and it, you know our band and it wouldn't be a because it just seemed kind of lame to do that. And those guys didn't have that because how could they, they couldn't do that. They couldn't be anonymous. They were world famous. You know, they were going to, they, they, anybody knows that Grand Royal was the BC boys magazine. You know, that, that was a thing. They, I mean, they had, I forget who they brought in to do that. They had somebody to, to run the magazine, but mm-hmm. uh, that was a different, they had a different status. They had a different status than us. They had a different, they were world famous. They, they, anybody's going to know that the magazine is their magazine. We had it. We weren't, (laughs) we're very not world famous. We could do it a different way. So you guys obviously had fans, but did you get, did you ever get hate mail from musicians and labels who hated what you were doing? You were parodying their work. No, not really. Cause we're so far under the radar. I think that that was the thing. Like we're so, uh, so far under the radar that, who cares? You know, who cares if this little magazine out in the hinterlands <laughs> says something <laughs> bad about you? You know, nobody cares. It's kind of this thing that nobody cares. Although this one guy did call us up and like wanted to, uh, uh, yeah, we did get one call. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, who cares about him? <laughs> I heard you guys did an insane clown posse uh, comic journalism piece that ran in spin. And I think there's a version of that that ran in the last motor booty and they caught wind of it or their fans caught wind of it. They weren't happy about that. That was actually an assignment. They assigned Mike and I to go see the insane clown posse and do a, do a comic story. And they had done something else. Some, this other team of guys, they, they'd had them go somewhere and gave them a, like a four page comic journalism thing where they'd gone somewhere and the one guy do the pictures and another guy, uh, you know, wrote it. We went and did this thing and you know what their deal is, you know, like what their shtick is. It was this thing that when, when Barry, told me about what they did, like what their concept was. I I thought he was making fun of me, like what their, what the (laughs) the concept of ICP is. And it's, it's real. And it's also, you know, that's something that kids can, can understand easily. They can understand this, wear clown makeup and (laughs) 
gangster rap, you know, like that, that was the, that was the thing that was easily, easily understandable. And we made fun of it because it's easily, easy to make fun of it. You know, it's easy to make fun of this thing. And then that was printed in spin and they were really mad about it. They were really mad. And at first I felt bad for them because it was like, Oh, nobody likes to be made fun of. But then I thought, then they were like trying to, trying to like, put my face on their website like a wanted poster and trying to get their fans to find me and beat me up. And it's just like, screw you guys. <laughs> You're going <laughs> to try to beat me up just because we made fun of you. And, and, and it, like they got like this guy who was a hockey player on the, on the, on the Red Wings. They went on his radio show and they're talking about how they're going to beat me up. And he's like joining in on it. This, <laughs> what was his name? I forget his name, but he's Canadian, man. And he wanted to fight. He wanted to like, he wanted to like saying all these things he's going to do to me. They're going to beat me up. It's like, whatever. <laughs> you guys can't take it. So, so we did a thing, a, a, a follow-up, a sequel to it in motor booty. So we reprinted the b- both pieces. We reprinted the, 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 the original piece and we did a follow-up that also got into the idea of rock criticism of, and, and a history of rock criticism or just criticism, music criticism and the way that the musicians have reacted to it. Cause nobody ever liked it. You know, even since Beethoven, nobody ever liked to have somebody, you know, putting down their work, and nobody does. Like everybody's going to remember the bad review, even though they might get a hundred good reviews. They're going to remember the bad one. Everybody is, and they're going to remember like whatever phrase the critic used. And even they might think it's in some part of their mind. They might think it's true, or they might know that it's not true, and it's, it it makes them mad. But they're going to remember it. So that was kind of the thing that made me think. Okay like we just talked about it take it takes a million hours to to draw that thing it takes a million hours to like carefully edit those stories and like make sure it's all lined up and do this whole thing and color it and million hours working on this thing and what to make fun of ICP like that's what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> That's what we're doing with our vehicle. We're going to like spend a million hours to our target of this, this, this joke, you know, this joke of a band. We're going to like spend, you know, you might as well be a fan. That's what the thing when I, when that, when that about that time was like, man, I might as well be a fan of ICP. I'm spending so much time, you know, like <laughs> intricately working this thing out. And it's, and then it was kind of, thinking I, I came to the realization is like this is not worth my time <laughs> you know i don't have the time in life to waste on the, something this stupid that's kind of where it got to the point of like getting to the end of motor booty i think we talked about this you know at that time when you and i last talked it was kind of like what am i doing i'm spending all this time for and and it's it's not like you're going to you know, stop them you're not going to stop them from putting bad music in the world <laughs> you know it's just what's the point of it they're gonna they're gonna roll on and they are they're rolled on they're rolled on and they've made their money and they did they had their families and everything else so who cares you know what was the point of me we spending so much time to make fun of them it's not worth it and then it became this thing also Again, the other problem is all this stuff you, you put all this time into 
putting, I mean, that's the thing. A magazine is of its time. It's of its moment. But then you have something that's dated horribly. It's like this old fish, you know, it's like this thing that, <laughs> that it would need this, it need volumes of sidebars to explain it to your, you know, your daughters, <laughs> your daughters, like were even interested in music. And I'm going to try to explain to them what motor booty is. And it's like, what, <laughs> what the eighties grunge, what's grunge, you know, it's because it's so out, so dated. Nobody cares about that now. So it's kind of like, I, I realized this is the wrong, wrong track, you know, to be on this, trying to be, you're interested in cool things because you're we're, when we're young we're like connected to that thing we're connected to these cool sub pop and grunge and all this stuff in our bands and we're in the in you you got going out and like being in the world and then then i'm like then i'm realizing when i'm 31 you know it it's 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 not worth the time it's not worth the the effort it, to make something that's just going to be dated so then I was trying to do art, you know, like tried to do art that's not stuck to that thing, not tr- not stuck to some fashion thing or cool thing. Even if you're making fun of it, it still it still gets old, you know. Still, I'm here's the thing where we skewered some fashion from 1992. Who cares about it now? <laughs> was it a conscious decision to stop Motor Booty at some point, Mark, or just it kind of fizzled? Kind out? of that for for those reasons. And then like what you said, there was something around that time uh, where we put the last rec- or the last issue out and all these returns came back, the, all these boxes of returns. And it was so demoralizing. There'd been something where this box, these boxes came back and it's like, <laughs> what? You know, like I thought these were gone and get this pile in my front hallway, this pile of unsold <laughs> magazines. It's so demoralizing. It's like, what? I don't want these things. You know what? I ended up moving and buying a house, buying this 100-year-old house here in Detroit some t- not too long after that, a few years after that, and moved, to, moved across town. And so a bunch of those boxes, I put them in the attic of the house. And the house was neglected, and the soffits of the house were completely infested with pigeons and squirrels. So... The squirrels were completely at home and completely unfazed. When I'd hear them like running around up there, and I'd come up there, and they'd just be looking at me like, "Yeah, <laughs> what do you want?" <laughs> you know, this is my house. And they actually took one of the boxes of the unsold magazines. They dragged them over. They got in the box and dragged some of the the they dragged the, the issue over to their nest and used it for nesting for the squirrel <laughs> nest. That's pretty funny. So it ended up, it ended up in ignominy. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Do you still have a bunch of boxes, Mark, of back issues? There's still some up there. Yeah. I see. I got rid of the squirrels. I went up and like repaired. See, that was the other thing. That's another thing. Like, hindering and hampering my productivity is this house project of fixing this house up. So these take like, imagine like taking this painstaking perfectionist, but incompetent approach to trying to fix a house, like trying to completely this, just, you know, uh, restore this house. (laughs) It's just (laughs) other 
fool's errand of like trying to fix this place. It's taken years and years and it's so many, you know, all these paintings that should have been done is, is, is that the time has been expended on, on the shingles, on the, on the cedar shingles on the face of the house, you know, all this, this other stuff. It's kind of like, well, that's great. You know, uh, posterity is not going to look kindly on me to be like, well, he didn't like, where are those paintings that he was supposed to, you know, he should have done in his lifetime. Yeah. But look at his, look at the parlor. <laughs> it doesn't look great. Like, no, like it's not going to be like that when I'm dead. Like some, some yuppie's going to come up here, come up in here and like tear it all out and, you know, put in an open floor plan and a granite countertop. He's not going to care about this attention to, uh, 1906 detail that I did here, and so to be like, eh, whatever. He's gonna tear it out and put a big screen TV over the, you know, over the, over the, over the fireplace. And and where will my paintings be that I that I didn't get accomplished during that time? So before we get to your oil painting, I want to talk about your freelance illustration. Do you still do freelance illustration stuff, Mark? Yeah, you know, but barely, almost never. I, you know. I looked at that article from 2000 and again, again, man, just the hubris and arrogance. Cause I'm, I'm saying like, well, you know, I, I pay my rent doing those uh, illustrations. Like it's just, I just got to do something to pay the rent and I don't really care about it. <laughs> and then it became like the world has changed so much since then, since 2000, that, 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 job is gone that job and that was a that was a good job to do an illustration you do an illustration in a in a short amount of time to do a spot illustration for a, a magazine and you get it there, there were all these magazines they have plenty of money they'd pay and i could live on it, it was so it was an easy way to live then it became this thing where that disappeared <laughs> and then i'm saying oh you know like i wish i get an illustration job sometimes to because it became that just is gone you know that that the the print the world of print and all these magazines all these magazines went away and all those jobs went away there used to be again and also all these these weeklies in, in all these different cities that, that, that paid for that kind of thing that had those kind of jobs just disappeared. And so you're in oil painting now. Yeah. How did that come about? So then again, that was this other thing that I didn't learn how to do. I didn't go to school and learn how to do it. I had to learn it backwards and trying to, uh, learn on the job and make all these mistakes and, and lose all these, all this time trying to learn how to do it. And I just, but it's really fun. It's really cool. It's like something like not, it's a, actually the, as a medium, it's this actually a magic thing. It's a magic thing that I didn't invent it. You know, I'm not trying to say I invented this thing, but like they invented this thing of the, these transparency where you put a put something this this undercoat of a of a of your drawing of your your picture and then put these transparent these semi-transparent layers of paint that add this illusion of depth to this thing it's really fun it's really cool to see it uh sort of emerge sort of develop over whatever 50 layers that i put on it but 
who knows how much time I have to, to try to even get to that, you know, try to get good at that thing. I'm trying to do it. I keep trying to get better at it. Who knows how much time you get to try to get there. I just keep trying to get there. That's all. But it's cool. Like I, I love, I love, uh, looking at the guys who are really great through time, you know, just going to, to look at what they did and, and try to aspire to do something good, you know, just even though it's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to reach something that these, the, these masters did, the, the, the guys who are, who are my, my teachers in this thing, but it's a worthwhile, it's a worthwhile pursuit. It's a worthwhile way to, to spend the time. Who are some of those teachers that you're talking about? Who do you look to for inspiration? I've got a friend here in town who was trained in the Eastern Bloc. He's from Yugoslavia and went to Romania to to learn in to go to art school. So all this stuff happened after World War II, where in the in the East they stuck with the classical approach, in, in where his experience was uh, a classical approach to art his art and art art school art instruction so that meant the stuff that had been going on for centuries they kept it going and he had to learn all the techniques like all the techniques and and also like making the you know making the frames and making all the woodworking techniques all the making the stretchers everything that had to be done so he's this guy that i is my friend and i can go and just ask him about how to do this stuff. And he, his, he's, he looked at me and looked at what I was trying to do. And he took me to the art museum here and he took me to the, they have a, a like a pretty large a collection of Flemish art from 1400s. And the, they have, they have a Bruegel there and they have some of these other guys from that time. And he, he took me to the room where they had that stuff. And he said, Okay, you stay in here. I'll see you in a couple hours. <laughs> that was the, his instruction. And he said, I'm going to go smoke some cigarettes. I'll see you in a couple hours. So I had to st- <laughs> stand in there and, and look at these things and say, why does he want me to look at these things? Because these guys were very close to their graphic art. Like He, he, he knew I had no experience and he had... Uh, but that, that I was a graphic artist and was drawing and trying to do these precise graphic art things that I'm telling you about that I'm still, <laughs> I haven't gotten any better at getting loosened up from that. I'm just sticking with that, that tight, you know, graphic art approach, but he's trying to have me learn how to do painting. So he's saying, look at these guys. So they had intense, like finished pencil drawings on a hard surface on a hard piece of wood and then they painted over that with these transparent layers of paint. That was their, that's how they did this thing. And a lot of times you can still see a pencil line, like that, in that Bruegel in the, in the DIA, in the Detroit Institute of Arts, you can see the pencils. So that there you can see like, there's your, there's your, you know, behind the curtain, there's your scene. You can see the, the guy's hand, like how this thing is done. Actually, they have one at the, the Met in New York that's an unfinished painting by Elric Durer that is the drawings all there. He, he didn't finish the painting. So it's all the pencil, the pencil drawings there. You can see, Oh, this is how he did it. It's all, it's all there. And then you can go and try to learn 
after that, you've got to go with all these layers of paint to do that you can see through until you finally get something that, that starts to make, you know, give you some, some depth. And so that's what he had me, had me learn from That's my art school, go learn, go look at these paintings and try to do what they did. Even then it took years of like incompetence of like, Oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> and then I don't, I don't have it. You know, like I think again, hubris and like, Oh, I got it. I got it. A couple hours. Of, no, it takes years. All this stuff I didn't master. I'm trying to catch up on trying to learn. And, uh, it became this thing of like doing, basically it's based on that, you know, coming from drawings. So there's a, there's always like a drawing, uh, like a finished drawing done beforehand. That's what I do. Like it's finished drawing done beforehand and it's transferred to the, the hard, the hard board and then paint on top of that many color, uh, layers of paint on top of that. But then it becomes a thing of like, well, there's a limitation of how big you can make something like that. And this other thing that I was trying not to learn was canvases and stretching canvases. I was trying to stick with this hard surface. And again, my friend saying, you got to face the facts. You, if you want to make something bigger, it's got to be canvas because it's got to, it's lighter and you can, you're still going to have to make a frame for it. If you're going to have like a giant, you know, altarpiece of <laughs> Ghent altarpiece of wood. You're never going to be able to deal with that. You know, like he's, he's making fun of me saying you're never going to be able to make something like that. Something, some giant wooden thing that I, that I imagine I'm going to do. So I had to learn this, this thing too, like to try to make uh, arched topped canvases. Like you can all, you can go to the art supply store and buy, uh, stretchers to make a, a, a rectangular canvas, but if you want to make an arch top, it's a it's a custom thing. Because I just don't I just don't want to make things that are rectangular. I want there to be curves in it. I just want there to be like an arch on the top or an arch on the corners. Or I was make I've been making all these circular paintings, you know. So it's got to be this custom thing because you can't you can't buy a, any kind of curvy thing. Adds all this complications to it it makes this this whole more thing to it which again i had to learn how to do in comical you know comical uh uh missteps <laughs> all this time was lost in these stupid mistakes that i made do you usually have more than one piece on the go at a time yeah yeah there's this is a big house like that's can that can be a good thing or a bad thing it means like there's a lot of room that to like projects can get shoved off in one other room, can go off in another room. They can be neglected in another room while I'm working on something else. And when we spoke 20 years ago, you mentioned that a lot of people who are coming out to your gallery shows were rock people. I'm wondering, has that changed in the meantime? Yeah, because I'm so far, like, it would only be like old friends who would even know I was in a band at this point. You know, I'm so, yeah. it's so far in the ancient past. If anybody comes, they, I don't know, they, they might, if they're old, if they're old, they know me from those days. If there's somebody young, that doesn't mean anything to them. You know, that's so far. That's before they were even born. <laughs> like, yeah. My whole musical life is before they were even born. Last question. Big Chief. 
any high points or low points that uh, that you want to talk about? Yeah, that was so much fun. That was such a great thing. You know, like we had, we went really far. We went really like did a lot. You know, like went went to Europe five times. It was great. It was a great thing. I think I told you when we talked the last time it was basically that I didn't try to be really good at guitar. Like I, I was satisfied to be into this narrow sort of like a punker trying to play funkadelic songs. It's kind of like, you know, what, what I was trying to do and yeah. uh, kind of, cause that was kind of the, 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 where our thing started, you know, like, like looking at like how amazing, uh, of a inspiration funkadelic was plus our natural uh growing up from learning the stooges and from hardcore and trying to put those things together and what's really was interesting to read about how much the stooges liked funkadelic at the time you know like that that scott ashton was really into funkadelic he's into that kind of stripped down beat that you hear at the at the on, on the first uh, Funkadelic record and the cross, you know, like the cross influence between those bands and what we, you know, we were looking at that as a, just this, like you'd found the secret, like you'd found the secret to the, the wellspring of the, the, the universal groove, you know, you, and that's kind of something that you look at these kind of bands, like, you look at those two bands, you look at James Brown's music where it was just this endless groove. You found this groove and just go with it. And you look at things like master musicians of Jajuka that are this trance music that has that same thing, just a trance groove. And you have like uh, these, the guitar players from Mali that, that were, they put out some records in the nineties that this kind of universal universal groove that these guys had had latched into and we're trying to like learn from that like trying to find some 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 connection to that thing to that that universal groove like like we talked about before we're at this time where we we did this thing and our our main thing was to put out cool records cool looking records that were interesting looking and 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 interesting articles you know like put put these singles out that were cool looking and, and appealing you know appealing looking and and sounding i guess it sounds stupid what i'm trying to say but then no, but it became these, these like, lovely art objects and, and you're you're yeah a lot that, to do with that right? yeah that was that was kind of the thing to put put these things out and go to europe like we, we'd seen that some bands had gone to europe like at the uh the necos hadn't gone and that was kind of when we first started. It's like we're going to put out these cool records. We're going to go to Europe. It's going to be cool. That's what we wanted to mm-hmm. do. And we did those things. But that was right at when grunge and Nirvana happened, and the whole uh, the whole thing changed, where the record companies were all of a sudden interested in trying to find the next Nirvana, and there was a bunch of money flowing around, you know, and they were throwing it around, and like all those bands, all the other bands on sub pop, anybody who had anything to do with sub pop was interested in them. They were, you know, willing to, uh, come courting them. And we had our, we had those two records on sub pop. And so we were in for our interest and our, uh, courting (laughs) our time of courting by the record companies which was hilarious (laughs) because it'd be like they'd send somebody out with a with an expense uh, account 
And so wherever we were meeting them, we'd do some uh, recon and some uh, try to find out where the most expensive, best restaurant was in town. And so we'd meet <laughs> when the when the representative of the the record company would come, we'd say, oh, let's go to this place. Let's go to, you know, Quixote in New York City, and we're going to bring all our friends, and we're all going to have giant, you know, giant paellas. You know, we're going <laughs> to and and like just run up this huge score on the on the expense account. Like you have our friends along too, you know, our, and and they don't care. The person who's there is that's their job. Their job is to go on. You know, was business discussed? They talk about business, and we'd have have some big dinner, and we would we played that for a long time, and then we we're like I said. You know, like I told you before, we had some some naive idea that somehow if you were with a, on a major label, there would be enough money, there would be enough money to, um, the money wouldn't be, the shortage of money that always was an omnipresent factor in on an independent label would be not a problem. And we could just do the record and the people who were, uh, in charge of distributing it and promoting it would be professional and that was their job and they would just have to do it. They wouldn't be like somebody at the, at the small label doesn't like what we did and is going to have a grudge against it. That's, that's enough to stop you. You know, any kind of thing like that. We had this naive idea that it would be all professional, that we'd, we'd go to Capitol records and we everything would be professional. But what, what, what happened was, we went from Sub Pop to Capitol Records, and Capitol was had whoever had been uh, signed us was out by the time we got there, and they had a new president. So we're the stepchild. We're the stepchild of the old regime that they don't want us. <laughs> you know, they don't want who's this this project. I guess we got to put it out, but we don't. He didn't care. He, like the new regime didn't care about us. So we're in there and. It didn't. It wasn't a good experience. It didn't turn out to be a good experience. A big thanks to Mark for taking the time to chat with us. You can check out Mark's artwork at markdancy.com, and you can also check out back issues of Motor Booty at the Internet Archive. Several have been uploaded there for your reading pleasure, so you know what to do. And thank you for listening. Thank you to anyone who's ever listened to, subscribed, reviewed, left a comment. We appreciate it a lot. You can find us on Twitter at RockRitPod and connect that way. See you next episode. Bye for now.